0: It. Episode three of our Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood series. This is off the book Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. And today we are going to be talking about chapter one titled A Vision of Biblical Complementarity. So, Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible. This chapter was written by John Piper. If you are new to this um, show and our series that we're doing here, basically we are reading through the book. And then I'm just kind of giving brief outlines, some thoughts, not not super structured and organized. Definitely would be beneficial for you to go out and purchase this book and read along with us. That way you can get the full context. And I will say now, even having only read uh, just about 55 pages through this book, that it's it's easy to read, it's thick to read, but it's, it is one of those books Piper I feel like he has a tendency of this where if you are an underliner and a note taker when you read a Piper book it feels like you want to underline every phrase that he says he just kind of he's so sequential in his thoughts and he has such a command of language in a way that's uh, gentle. It's like th- there's no better way I could paraphrase what was just said here. <laughs> so uh, it, it's it's even a little bit hard for me to sometimes summarize his thoughts on this. But we'll see how long this goes. My plan is to potentially break this, uh, this chapter into two episodes. We'll see. The, the basic structure of this chapter was uh, basically four parts, if you count the introduction. We had an introduction to the topic, and then we have a discussion on the meaning of mature masculinity, a discussion on the meaning—I shouldn't say discussion, I'd say definition and then discussion, then a definition and discussion on the meaning of mature femininity, and a biblical vision of complementarity, and then the final section is a challenge to men and women. And I I think this is one of those—it's a 15-point challenge, and I want to type it up, print it out, have it just like— posted everywhere in my house maybe make one of those things where you paint it into your wall you know that'd be a little bit too aggressive probably but one of those charges that you know um if you were to give to your son or daughter and think like, how should I raise my son or daughter? What do I really want them to become? These 15 points, I think eloquently, sufficiently summarize that. So uh, if that alone intrigues you to buy the book, it should. We're going to be reading that at the end of this chapter discussion, whether that's next episode or this one kind of remains to be seen. Okay. So I just adjust my, just in my mics here. So it's a little bit, fuller sound sorry about that beginning but let's hop into it then so chapter one this introduction john piper and it's kind of funny learning a little bit more about him as a person too but his father was uh gone most of the time i think he says like three-fourths of the year on the road doing ministry or two-thirds of the year and so during that time um Mom was doing everything, handling the finances, paying the bills, dealing with the bank. You know, she was the one who was uh, beyond just making the meals. She was learning how to keep the kids. (laughs) Uh, She helped with maps and geography. Showed me how to do a bibliography. Working in algebra two, she dealt with contractors adding a new basement. She'd put her hand to the shovel. Basically, Piper concludes, like you know, I had a super mom who could do it all. I I concluded growing up that there was nothing she couldn't do, Um, and she was someone who sweated. You know, not just women don't sweat, they glow. He he puts a stamp on that saying, No, it's not true. My mom was a hard worker. And despite all this, when dad would return, um, he speaks of how mom was thrilled about this and very excited to embrace the leadership and headship that. That his father would bring when he was there. It, it was not a spiteful thing, or well, I'm do- I'm taking care of all this. Well, you're gone anyway, so you know, fall in line, mystery. It was I'm I'm doing what needs to be done to keep our family headed towards the ultimate goal of glorifying Christ, conforming our children's to the image of God. Uh, those things. Uh, and, but when you're here, I gladly will follow your leadership in these places. And and um, so what we have, well, we have, that beautiful, beautiful. Um, um relationship as, as God has ordained it to be existing. I find it fascinating that Piper really kind of experienced growing up a, not a, not a true like single mom experience, but more leaning towards that um, continuum. And he talks, he has this paragraph where he uses the word both over and over again because he says it never occurred to me to think of my mother and my father in the same category. Uh, and, and he says, both were strong, both were bright, both were kind, both would kiss me, both would spank me, both were good with words, both prayed, both loved the Bible, but unmistakably my father was a man and my mother was a woman. They knew it and I knew it. So somewhere along the way, even though he's be, he's growing up in this environment where it's not your typical um dad's home all the time, mom's home all the time, and we see these roles actually playing out. He actually saw a mom who was covering for dad and covering a lot of those roles, but and and despite the fact that he saw mom and dad as both being able to do so many things, there's that critical but but father was a man, my mother was a woman, we could see this. And and uh, we see this style throughout the chapter. Piper just so gently presents the biblical theology behind the definitions of mature masculinity and femini- femininity. I'm going to struggle on that word the rest of this chapter. Well, at the same time, recognizing the possibility of different literal abilities, uh, different outcomes, like the, this practical specifics of it might somewhat look different, um, kind of in such a way to diffuse the obvious typical of to his statements and i think what i conclude i guess is because he was raised by Well, he concludes this too because he was raised by parents who lived out the biblical definitions of masculinity and mature femininity piper never really viewed submission as being equal with inferiority right and he he um in fact the quote that he says is it never occurred to me that leadership and submission had anything to do with superior superiority and inferiority. It didn't have to do with muscles and skills either. It was not a matter of capabilities and competencies. It had to do with something I could never have explained as a child, and I've been a long time coming to understand it as part of God's great goodness in creating us male and female. Basically, he saw the biblical design and he couldn't really put, you know, couldn't really explain it as a child, but then later on, becoming a pastor, becoming a theologian, he comes to realize the biblical foundation and he makes this statement the uh, saying uh there were dimensions of reality and goodness in it that ought to be there in every home indeed they ought to be there in varying ways in all mature relationships between men and women what he's saying ought to be there are these this distinction that god has made good because of the distinction between male and female he says that ought to be there and he, he says later that i say ought because of rooted in god and you know what um i've been doing a fair bit of studying here on ethics uh, doing some listening to some greg bonson lectures about that and when we talk about ought we're making a more moral an ethical statement you know and and the the opposition to anyone who says you ought to do this should be says who and if we're rooting something in god we have an objective uh, moral foundation for that so piper sees this in his home realizes it can't really understand totally why but sees it as being deep sees it as part of being god's great goodness and concludes after realizing really what the bible says that wow this was god's design god ordained design for men and women to uh, relate to one another and that's why it ought to be that way. He can say that with authority, that this actually is how it ought to be. It isn't simply an opinion and other people can say, well, I think it ought to be that way. I mean, they can say they think it should be that way, but they are not right in terms of reality. God, this is, they still are living in God's world and God has designed man and, wo- and woman to relate to one another in a specific way, in a way that glorifies him and in a way that pleases the creatures. Uh, God loves His creation. He loves man. He loves woman, and He designed them in such a way that will benefit them to the fullest. And we will be the most satisfied, and we will glorify God the most when we are living within His design. So, um, basically, setting up that introduction, he he kind of uh, you know he's going to he's going to set out in this chapter to define the differences as God wills them according to the Bible and um he does make a couple of points in terms of this chapter isn't going to be the exegetical uh, chapter where it's pulling that so much he kind of has a two sort of ways you could go about this we could we could look at thorough exegesis and we could look at another way and that is commending the beauty as well as the truth of this vision that god has for men relating to women and that's more what he is going to do in this chapter Uh, The main thing, his main idea is to show the vision of manhood and womanhood as a deeply satisfying gift of grace from a loving God who has the best interests of his creatures at heart. So he does provide a lot of footnotes in here as well, but this isn't the part of the book yet where we've really um, done our homework in terms of exegeting. Here's, here are all the verses that say that, which I guess I'm a little, you know, just as a reviewer coming, I'd actually prefer the first category when we look at a thorough exegesis, um, of manhood and womanhood, but whatever, we'll, we'll keep rolling with it. So this next part of the chapter, uh, is, is quite shocking, actually. What, What Piper basically brings up is the fact that theologians, though able to recognize this importance of the distinction between men and women, are unable to define them. And it's shocking to Piper. It should be shocking to us as well. And I think the reason it's shocking is because instead of going towards the objective source available, the Bible, for a direction, they actually seem to run in step with the world and allow for culture a subjective, developing viewpoint on what it means to be man and what it means to be woman. So, and we we could title this, this show, and I thought about doing it, actually titling the podcast with this quote, Dad, what does it mean to be a man and not a woman? Or, Mom, what does it mean to be a woman and not a man? And Piper brings up that you know, the tendency today is to stress the equality of men and women by minimizing the unique significance of our maleness and females. And a lot of energy we see, it's being expended today, minimizing the distinctions of manhood and womanhood. Um, and we, we, we don't often hear what manhood and womanhood should incline us to do. And he, he brings a quote here from Paul Jewett. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name totally right um and he says uh this is the part where he oh well first i'll read he has two two quotes from him one of them recognizing the importance of the distinction and then the next one kind of being unable to define it so this first one this is paul joiard says sexuality permeates one's individual being to its very depth it conditions every facet of one's life as a person as the self is always aware of itself as an i so this i is always aware of itself as himself or herself our self knowledge is indissolubly bound up not simply with our human being, but with our sexual being. At the human level, there is no I and thou per se, but only the I who is male or female confronting the thou, the other, who is also male or female. And so just seeing this sexuality that, that is penetrating the deepest metaphysical ground of who we are, recognizing that. To that we say amen. But then the, sec- the second part, stunning to read what Jewett does not know, uh, what man and woman are. He says, Some, at least among contemporary theologians, are not so sure that they know what it means to be a man in distinction to a woman or a woman in distinction to a man. It is because the writer shares this uncertainty that he has skirted the question of ontology in this study. Um, And he says, all human activity reflects a qualitative distinction which is sexual in nature, but in my opinion, such an observation offers no clue to the ultimate meaning of that distinction. It may be that we shall never know what that distinction ultimately means, but this much at least seems clear. We will understand the difference, what it means to be created as a man or a woman, only as we learn to live as a man and woman in true partnership of life. Now, this begs the question to Piper. I'm glad he goes presuppositional on this bit. <laughs> uh, because uh, he, he says, uh, what about Judith's prescription for hope? Uh, he suggests that we discover who we are as a man or a woman by experiencing a true partnership as man and woman. The problem with this is that we cannot know what a true partnership is until we know the nature of the partners. So it's begging the question. Uh, the only way we know what a man and woman is is by experiencing true partnership as a man and woman okay so a true partnership needs us to define what a man and a woman is so without defining first what a man and a woman is we can't be in a true partnership that will allow us to define what a man and a woman is um it is it's circular. It's begging the question, really. So uh, just logically, philosophically, that doesn't make sense. We need to go to an objective place. And that's how he closes this introduction. Well, not quite closes, but, but leading us in here. He's saying that, and, and I'll read this quote, our understanding is that the Bible reveals the nature of masculinity and femininity by describing diverse responsibilities for man and woman while rooting these, these differing responsibilities in creation, not convention. When the Bible teaches that men and women fulfill different roles in relation to each other, charging man with a unique leadership role, it bases this differentiation not on temporary cultural norms, but on permanent facts of creation. And he has three verses that, that he has to show that 1 Corinthians 11, 3, 16, for, uh, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, and 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 14. So, Basically, though, here, when we're thinking presuppositionally, too, even, like, the objective nature of this definition of men and women is critical. We are not to follow society and have a developing philosophy on what it means to be a man and a woman. It should be permanent, and it's permanent. It's rooted in creation by the Creator. Um, let's read those verses. 1 Corinthians 11, 3-16 but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for a woman to shave her hair, cut off her but. If it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves... Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In Ephesians 5, 21-33, instructions for Christian households. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one who ever hated their own no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of His body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And finally, the first Timothy eleven through fourteen passage, which says, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. I didn't plan in this show here to pull out, you know, and, and execute these verses fully or anything. But one thing I will note is that relation that any time these statements are made, they tie it back to creation. For Adam was formed first is mentioned. In Corinthians, it talks about for uh, man was born of, a woman came from man, right? We have these examples. Anytime the principle is made, it's based and rooted in a principle from creation. Ephesians as well. Um, so that's kind of what I'll just pull from those those verses. In wrapping up though the introduction, uh, before we go into these definitions of what mature ma- uh, masculinity and femininity are, I like how Piper closes by saying kind of, this is a touchy subject, and there's going to be the potential for misinterpretation. And he has this great quote, I love it. He says, Before assessing an author's position, express an understanding of it in a way the author would approve. And I wrote in my own words, this is something I try to teach my students even, is follow the line of reasoning before judging the line of reasoning. And I think that's something that is lost on us kind of entirely. Typically, uh, in a culture where we're just kind of waiting for our next, our turn to talk, we don't try to honestly hear the line of reasoning um, in, in argumentation. And I've actually seen this kind of play out a couple of times from very recently with a theologian that I, I listen to a lot. And I, th- I I think he's more rock solid than almost anyone in, in terms of theology. That's James White. But he was trying to, um, or he was critiquing a couple of these clips. And it was even clear to me that he wasn't being honest in trying to follow the line of reasoning and then pointing out the inconsistencies i didn't feel but regardless this is really important on a topic like this and it requires i think people to think harder about how they define certain words and to just be to not jump to conclusions uh and so when we hear words like submissive authority leadership those can have multiple meanings depending on who you are where you've grown up your culture such and such and so, to before before attributing your definition of that word to the author's usage of it, we need to go, okay, in the author is using authority to mean this, and their line of reasoning is following from this premise, and then making a judgment perhaps on it. And so that was I think again, this is, you should buy this book because it's it's so enjoyable to hear. Piper write about a topic like this with such gentleness and yet firmness. The way he does that, the way he is so theologically sound, gentle, and yet firm is um, just really... We should be trying to emulate it, I think, as Christians. In our conversations, in our writing, in our Facebook commenting, just you name it. All right, and so then the second part uh, that we are going to talk about is... meaning of mature masculinity so if we titled this show I guess we would say imagine your your son comes up to you and says daddy what does it mean to be a man and not a woman here is the definition given by this text at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead provide for and protect women in ways appropriate to a man's differing relationships and Piper's going to spend the rest of the chapter just breaking down this definition phrase by phrase. So here's some of my key thoughts I drew from it, followed by the phrases in blue. Basically, what I gleaned is there's three duties of a man in that definition, to lead, to provide for, and to protect. There may be more, but there's certainly not less. That's what Piper says. He says men who don't feel these things are simply immature in their masculinity. So to not feel a sense of an importance to protect something, to, to to protect uh, women, or to provide for women, or to lead women. If you're not feeling that, it just means that you have not matured on that and and um, matured in your masculinity. He talks a little bit about how how we're, we're, we can move towards maturity, but it's not to say that to just v- validate. Oh, you don't feel that, so that I guess that must not be part of being a, a man because you're a man and you don't feel it. That's not how that works. And the same goes for the definition in women, too, is to not sense those things, is to just simply be immature in your femininity or immature in your masculinity. So he also talks about it being a sense. I'll repeat that in the definition. It says at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility and then to lead, provide, protect. And that's important because there are those who can't do those things. And if physically, you're, you're not able to work. Perhaps you're on disability and you're, you're, you're a man and you're not able to go and provide and have the job that is doing the bread and winning. And I love what he says here. He says, for those, though, the reason we say sense is, as a man, you ought to be feeling the pressure to provide a sense of pressure, responsibility to be accountable for those three elements anyway. In other words, if God were to come and ask for an account on the leadership provision or protection of the household, he's going to come to you first. The quote he says is, What I mean when I say that a man should feel a benevolent responsibility to provide is this. When there's no bread on the table, it is the man who should feel the main pressure to do something to get it there. It does not mean his wife can't help side by side, maybe working a different job, and perhaps even we could go on and say perhaps in a certain situation the wife is the one making the money. Maybe the husband is in grad school. Maybe it is disability. You could go on and on. The The fact of the matter is even in those situations the man is the one feeling the main pressure to get that there. Uh, the other one, leadership, it receives special attention here, and so he breaks it farther down to nine critical elements. We almost could make a whole show just on that. Um, and in my opinion, this is sort of where I, I will insert this uh, now and to just kind of put it on your mind, that leadership it seems to me to be the most important aspect of being a man within, uh, uh, because it's within this role of a man to lead his family towards that ultimate goal, which is faith in Christ. If all the other elements fail, but this one prevails, him and his family will be with the Lord for eternity. So the way he defines leadership is, you know, to bring people towards a common goal. And when we think about leadership in its highest, most important sense, that common goal for the family is to know Christ salvifically and to glorify him. Well, that is clearly the highest calling of any human. And so I think that that first aspect actually could hold sway as, as the most important priority for a man to, to develop, and, but, it, but before developing, obviously defining correctly. And we're going to get into that with those nine breakdown elements. And finally, the last part, the innate sense of men to be men. This is a point that stuck out to me. Um, I think something that's felt by the unbeliever as well. And if we think about this example, think about a school shooting situation where, um, you know, and I, I've been in teachers, I've been in small groups, meetings on teams with men and women of various ages and experiences and authority. And I think about the possibility of if there was something like a school shooting that were to ever occur, um, the, the men that I know on my team, I can think of several like really heroic, mature, mature in their masculinity men not even all christians but you can just tell that they they innately have developed mature masculinity even on the bible's own standards even though they're not christians in the way that they feel a sense to protect provide okay and and lead and i think in this situation even though we have this unisex mentality which wishes to just eliminate these distinctions and 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 actually sometimes even point them out as being offensive and harmful the realization of our sexual being, as mentioned at the beginning of those chapters by those theologians, by Jewett, was that it's unavoidable. It's, it's unavoidable to, to, um, to not view yourself metaphysically at the most foundation as a man or as a woman. It just can't simply be denied. We can suppress it, and the unbeliever will, uh, but but many aren't, and and so I think about in a school shooting situation. I think you would see a lot of heroic, unbelieving men who would stand in the in the way of a bullet to shield uh, women, and they would they would rise to action to be men in that situation. And it, it, again, it's not it's not in terms of capability or ability, physically, emotionally. I think there are certainly. In that situation, we can think of men in our lives who would be far more scared than a woman. We can think of men in our lives who would be far less able to defend or fight against an intruder or an enemy. I mean, I, I know there are women who are trained black belts and, you know, and people who are in the military. They would they would deal with the situation better than I would if we turned to define better as just being more effective, But that doesn't diminish the sense or need for a man to feel inclined to protect, provide, lead. And I think that's an important realization is is the manifestation of these. It's not a cut at someone being less than. It's simply that if you are a man, you feel innately this desire to do that. If you are a woman, you feel an innate sense and calling to do this, X versus Y. It's different. And again, thinking of those abilities, there are, there are women who are better at doing many tasks that I think culturally we sometimes have tried to say that's a man's job. And that is a different discussion almost than what we're looking at this innate sense that God has kind of placed on men and women. That's at least sort of how I, um, how I view it because I, I know, again, going back to that situation where if it was a school shooting, I could think of uh, a very strong, brave woman who's trained to disarm a shooter, and they would be someone that that would be more effective in the situation. but that's that's not to diminish the innate sense or feeling of the men in the room that they would want to protect uh, and that that's just by that design um, and so one thought I kind of had going on that even, and I don't know if I, I'm probably doing this way out of order because really what I should be doing is, you know, talking about the definitions and then talking about these propositions. But I wrote in my note in the wrong way, my notes the wrong way. So you just got to kind of roll with it, I guess. But I think um, something to think about on the, along these lines is what is the effect of the suppression of that innate sense? So just in the same way that an unbeliever knows there is a God but suppresses it and can suppress it enough that God will allow them to go their own way, so to speak. When we suppress manhood and womanhood like we are doing in society, what will be the ultimate effects of that? Piper kind of points it out in terms of, you know, having higher rates of divorce, the deterioration of the family, which those two things then have mega consequences on society afterwards in terms of education and raising up of children and just the, the whole infrastructure of society is truly actually built on the stability, the, the strength of the family. And the strength of the family is predicated on these clear distinctions of men and women because God has designed men and women to relate to one another in a way which benefits them better than another plan. So when we break away that definition of man and, women for, man and woman first— well, that leads to deterioration of marriages and family, and that leads to a deterioration in society. Um, I've also thought, so another question, final. I'll let you ponder this too, is let's say you're opening the door for someone. Oh, uh, you're a man, you open the door for a lady, and they point out your bigotry. What's a good thing to say to them as a Christian? What's a good response to address this uh, in a way that will challenge them and potentially point them to Christ to believe faith in him? I kind of was thinking about that as I was reading this chapter as well. Well, I guess so now that I ended with my conclusion summaries, let's break it down. Let's break down this definition again. Here's the definition again of mature masculinity. At the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, provide for, and protect women in ways appropriate to others a man's differing relationships. So starting the first word is at the heart of. Again, signaling there's not more. This isn't an exhaustive definition, but there's not less. Sorry. There could be more to masculinity, but not less. How about mature masculinity? What does that mean? So that's talking about Um, If you don't feel these responsibilities toward women to lead, provide, protect, that just means you are incomplete and you need to move towards uh, mature masculinity. Perhaps you even have a distorted uh, masculinity. So mature would mean that it's a man's sense of responsibility is in this process of growing out of the sinful distortion, out of the limitations, trying to find that true nature Um, as a form of love, not a form of self-assertion. This should, in its most mature sense, should be uh, materialized as love, not self-assertion. Talking about a sense of, and again, this is really important. Uh, A man must not only be responsible, but sense or feel that he is. If he doesn't, he's not mature. And I can actually think of some situations too, where there are. I think there are some men that we know who for example are very mature in their in their in their um, sense of protection or maybe not mature in their sense of they're mature in how they protect women or provide for them but they aren't they aren't maybe and in that way they are maybe strong and big they're physically protecting right they 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 are going to stand in front of their wife or their girlfriend they're going to protect them from harm physically they they provide for their family because they have a really high paying job and they are financially secure because of that. But is the sense there biblically rooted that they have kind of cultivated that sense in in a responsibility to um, glorify God by being, a man in the in the way that God created him, him to be. So that sometimes I think can be lacking, first of all. So it is important to realize and get those people in your life into the word to go, look, this is why you should be doing these things. You need to cultivate that sense of masculinity. Um, and, th- and I think the outward uh, demonstration of that development is that they will be mature in their masculinity In other relationships other than just those very intimate ones because in that last part of the definition appropriate to a man's differing relationships it does come into context as men we are in contact with women in other situations other than just being in a marriage situation and if we're single that's also true remember the beginning of this book this being a man doesn't start when you are married so I think that's one way where that would actually um, come to fruition in some sense uh, and so again, kind of what, what Piper says, when in circumstances don't put him in any relationship where he actually has the possibility to relate to any woman. So that, that would be someone who is maybe not actually physically able to relate to a woman. They still can be mature in their masculinity by cultivating and developing that sense of responsibility, that sense of leadership, that sense of a need to protect and provide for. That's very important. And and I think the example we show can... can build that into our sons when they are young those definitions um what that looks like we can send out um uh from a boy who's three or four years old to once they become 18 19 20 they are mature in their masculinity maybe despite even having never dated someone i i think that should not be our culture might might think that's crazy what but i think that makes almost the most sense you know if they are raised by someone a man who has is mature in their masculinity a boy by the time they're 15 16 17 18 years old should be developing that maturity as well they're not married that doesn't matter they should have developed that sense of responsibility that sense to provide and protect all those senses so that when they are married those senses are strong and they have the opportunity to carry them out f- physically and literally um and and how, well, how does what does that actually look like as well I like I like how Piper brings up that the sense need not be actualized directly in order to qualify for mature masculinity for example his sense of responsibility will affect how he talks about women and the way he relates to pornography and the kind of concern he shows for the marriages of the men around him think about the single man who's at in in the in church right being concerned about the marriages of the young families around him or vice versa or not vice versa but if it's maybe not just a 20 year old but maybe it's a 50 year old man or a 70 year old man who who is not married but he would have desire to see those marriages be fruitful and thus would talk with the men and women in those relationships a certain way they would relate to them in school this again could go back to 14 15 year old boys being mature in masculinity how are they talking about the sexualization of their culture in terms of pornography the grammy awards like what is their response to that I mean, oh my gosh, I can't believe I even thought of that, but that's something that should be brought up is what had happened now that is totally normal and was displayed just a few weeks ago at the Grammy Awards was what would be considered a, a very, the very least uh, cheap pornography, essentially, on national television. It's that normalized, and you better believe that it's as normalized as that in 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, 10th grade, too, Um, And talk about a challenge to be someone to have standards and view women in a different way. Uh, But that's what we're called to do. And I think so that sense that the usage of the word sense is very important here. Um, And I kind of already talked about before, but, you know, the sense of responsibility, the sense of leadership, if it it is the man who should feel the pressure to get the bread on the table, even if they aren't the breadwinner, that's important as well. I starred two, two other points from this section, uh, quote, it says, his sense of responsibility will find expression in the ways he conquers self-pity and gives moral and spiritual leadership for his family and takes the initiative to provide them with the bread of life and protect them from the greatest enemies of all, Satan and sin. I think that encapsulates kind of the, mo- the key things. In terms of leadership, what's the most important thing we are as men leading our family? It's moral and spiritual guidance so the man and and this kind of is thinking about this like consequentially a man should be theologically firm and sturdy. They should not be someone wavering in their faith. They should not be unstable in their knowledge of the Bible. We should be constantly in the Word, constantly studying to know more. That is a huge part of our training grounds. Sure, we're going eventually we're going to have to just sit down with, with our, our sons and daughters and ask, answer the tough questions. That's going to happen, and sometimes I'm sure we're not going to have good answers. But we should be constantly striving to be ready for those moments so that we answer in a way that's honoring to the truth of the Bible. I, I don't think a, enough men take that part seriously as sort of an education that's ongoing. I think a lot of people, maybe they grew up in a church where when they were confirmed, they thought that's the peak of Christianity. I've, I've learned enough. Now I I'm good to go. And whatever I say is authoritative as a Christian, because I say I'm a Christian and I was confirmed. Or, you know, such and such. I say I'm a Christian, I go to church, so now I can just trust my instincts, follow my heart, um, sort of trust my instincts on matters that like these, these tough questions. No, that's not true. That's not true. You, when, when, when little sons, little daughters ask really hard questions about the meaning of life and, and they actually are asking, without using these words, but asking about the epistemological foundations of the universe, you need to be ready by first understanding that concept yourself and then being able to appropriately give it to them in a language that they will understand so uh, that's kind of a call right away is that if we are, if our most important leadership, and, and I'm saying leadership is the most important aspect of these, this three-pronged responsibility, leadership is, if it's moral and spiritual guidance, wow, you better, you better be constantly educating yourself in the Word and have, have good doctrine, have healthy doctrine, have healthy theology, um, because if you don't, I'm not sure uh, on what basis are you going to be providing that. Any, anything you're saying, you, the kid should say, well, says who? And if you say, says God or says the Bible, you better be able to point to that and explain that as well and be correct. <laughs> you know, you can't say, well, homosexuality is okay. Says who? Says God in the Bible. Okay, kid walks away. Well, now you've just given them false doctrine. Okay, um, let's see. Okay, so yeah, that's leadership, right? And and the rest. Takes the initiative to provide them with the bread of life. Again, provision. We're providing them with housing, shelter, all these other things, which really ultimately are um, – inconsequential compared to the ultimate thing we need to provide them with, which is the bread of life. We need to be able to provide our families with the truth of the gospel message and then protecting them from the ultimate enemy as well, which is Satan and sin. So I like how that statement goes, yes, here's your role as leadership, provision, and protection, but within those categories, here's the three most important aspects as well. Uh, And then it ends here, uh, however, if if a woman undertakes to give this kind of leadership toward her husband, she would not be acting in a properly feminine way, but would be taking up the masculine calling in that relationship. Oh, this was, okay, response, sorry, up. response to a question, what if there's a single parent, right, and a woman has to provide for all these things? Are these only for men to do? And this is how Piper would answer, a woman is not unduly masculine in performing these things for her children if she has the sense that this would be properly done by her husband if she had one, and if she performs them with a uniquely feminine demeanor. And I think that so summarizes what clearly he had experienced as well, was her mom was was following in line with what the Bible said a woman should do, taking up those tasks, but knowing they could have been done, uh, they would be more properly done by a husband just because of the design factor. So maybe even when you think about changing the oil, let's just say Piper's wife is better at changing the oil than, than Piper's mom, than Piper's dad. Well, still, um, in, maybe that's a bad example, but but I, I just want to say like in terms of the skill aspect of it, the if that aspect is part of provision, the wife would be thinking, even though I'm more effective at doing this, it is most properly understood as the male having the concern that this is taken care of. Um, and I think that's the part, too, of a humble man sometimes, although called to have initiative, which we'll get to later, but a man can definitely still delegate – Task, which culturally some people might say is more the role of a man, um, but still the sense of responsibility and the sense of pressure is in that leadership role is is for the man. And I think if that's the case, that explains why when dad is home, Piper's mom was was joyous to hand over that reins or to fit in and to. Um, to, in a holy way, submit to his leadership and guidance, both from a moral, spiritual standpoint, and to allow uh, him to lead in prayer and him to lead in some of those disciplined things, even though, obviously, mom had to be teaching and disciplining the kids when he was gone and leading them in prayer. Those things don't just go away. So I can think of an example, even at my own house, I think, where, you know, one thing Whenever we pack to go on a trip, Christy is much more geometric and can pack very efficiently. She just is very good at it and thinking practical. Practically, I think that's a task. Uh, I grew up where my dad was probably more in charge of that, more really good at packing the car for a long camping trip. Well, that's Christy's job, or not just job, but it's her skill set. Um, and in in the uh, in terms of preparing you know, meals or planning out buying groceries or just kind of visualizing those needs, I think I have actually a better ability at doing that efficiently, you know. Um, some people could probably challenge who makes <laughs> better food quality-wise, but I would just say just for example's sake, the those two are two examples of skills, but the idea of provision within either one of those and initiative within e- either one of those, the pressure still falls on me. So whether or not I'm saying that That, well, um, yeah, Christy, can you pack the back of the car? I'm going to gather the food we'll need for the next three days, right? The pressure of the packing of the car being done well still is ultimately resting behind me because that's part of that protection part. I, I at least that's a little bit how from just an application standpoint I'm sort of feeling that is sure the weight of that still is felt from the man because it kind of falls into that protect and provide thing. Now when we when we start talking about how these fit together because that's so important the response from the from the woman to strengthen the man in his leadership that is also critical because I think going along right right away. There is a tendency coming from a secular worldview especially to go – it kind of seems to me like what Piper is suggesting is the man is totally fine on his own. He has these three things that he should be doing to develop mature masculinity, and um, he could be single. It wouldn't really matter. He could still be fully mature in this, but a woman really needs a man in order to express her femininity. Um, and and I think that's a little bit of a straw man, because the reality also is that those expressions of masculinity are enhanced by the woman who is mature in her femininity. And the woman who affirms, nurtures, and receives the strengthening, worthy leadership of a worthy man is is what turns the engine, of that man to be a better leader, protector, and provider. So I don't know if there's really a good ample analogy, but the bottom line is they need each other. Um, a man to be as protective and providing for and as good of a leader as possible needs a woman who knows how to nurture, affirm, and receive. I should say in a different order, affirm, affirm receive and nurture those characteristics in the man. And so that's where it, it really is like the, the man is also dependent upon that woman in a certain sense. In the sense, however, that going back to single, married, whatever, a man can be mature in masculinity without having a spouse or a girlfriend. Um, uh, and, and vice versa, woman could be mature in femininity without that as well. Um, but the beauty of the relationship together is that they kind of work as this wheel that turn each other. I think that's kind of a really beautiful aspect that, you know, after reading this chapter has kind of come alive to me as well. Um, so these definitions for masculinity and femininity in the chapter are very similar, but, but they're just so cohesive as a unit is probably a bad way of saying it, but that's, that. I don't know, that's how it fi- feels to me. So I, I can tell already I'm not going to get to through all the things I should be. How about benevolent? What about that part about the definition? That just means for the good of women. So this kind of eliminates that whole idea of, um, you know, this isn't a disdaining self aggrandizing authorita- authoritarianism uh, relationship. The word benevolent is meant to signal that mature masculinity gives appropriate expression to the golden rule. Uh do unto others as you would do, you would want them to do unto you. And and reading that Bible verse, we I think was it Timothy? I can't remember now, one of them that talked about, you know, the you wouldn't hurt yourself and and such you're not going to hurt your wife, right? That that's clearly related, even Paul relates as I think Piper talks about that later on in this chapter as well. Responsibility that that touches on the next quote there. Um, so the, the again the whole definition at the heart of mature masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility. So it's benevolent in that it's beneficial for the woman as well, and it's a responsibility, an accounting. The man is uniquely called to account for those three things: leadership, provision, and protection in relation to woman. God came to Adam first. Where are you? Even though Eve had sinned first, God does not seek her out first. Uh, Adam's the one who's supposed to give that account, and again, rooted in creation, this principle—a benevolent sense of res- a benevolent responsibility—and here we get to the next parts: to lead, provide for, and protect women. So to lead, and this is the next section. I think it might be a good idea, actually, to stop right here, uh, just because <laughs> we've already gone pretty long, and I know I've been rambling. But this next section about leadership is is so critical. I think it deserves sort of its own segment. So I guess at the very least that gives you a little more time to read that chapter, ponder it, study it if you are if you haven't got the book yet, it gives you a little more time to order that book as well. This is recovering biblical manhood and womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem.